Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm your host, Kirk O'Bearer. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. I wanted to bring you up to speed on some developments that are happening in the courts. And uh, the reason this comes to mind right now is that I recently attended a conference uh, and there was a presentation there that had to do with um, alternative courts, treatment courts. And uh, the presenter at this particular meeting was someone who works with the alternative courts program in Green Bay. And it's it's an interesting story how Green Bay has come to, Brown County in particular, has come to utilize these alternative courts. And they've kind of built the model for how it could work in other places. Now, there are treatment courts, alternative courts, drug courts, veterans courts, mental health courts, etc. in other counties, but um, Brown County has really made the most um, dramatic strides in implementing those. They currently have seven different alternative court programs, which is more than any other county in the entire country. So the way that this all started was about three years ago, there was a proposal in Brown County for their um, county board of supervisors to approve a plan to build additional prison space. And they had allocated, I don't know, $15 million, something like that, uh, for this project. And a judge, Judge Zeidmulder, in Brown County was aware that this um, proposal was on the table. And he appeared at the uh, board meeting and said, wait a minute, why are we um, allocating more and more money towards more and more prison space to make room for more people to be incarcerated when we have evolved to the point in in many places where we have community resources that could be better utilized to give people, you know, real help rather than just incarcerating them. And they came up with a number of different criteria and did some cost estimates. And interestingly, over the three years that this these programs have been in place, they're, they've spent approximately $120,000 rather than that uh, $15 million that was out there. So a dramatic cost savings. And also, due to the fact that it costs roughly $45 a day to house each person who's in custody, I mean, that's the cost of the government to do so, Um over the course of these three years, Brown County has saved their taxpayers um, almost two and a half million dollars. So, fiscally speaking, this is something that uh, makes a lot of sense, and it's enabled them to really just build on the resources that are available for these types of things. Now, that being said, treatment courts are sometimes controversial uh, for a number of reasons. But the overall idea as to why these are uh, good alternatives is that if you can have a set of criteria, and they call this evidence-based um, you know, criminal justice application, evidence-based, meaning that they utilize statistics and 
there are studies that are done, and they notice trends, and there are comparisons based on uh, the existence of such programs versus the non-existence of them when people are given opportunities to engage in monitoring and treatment and so forth. Um, what sort of recidivism rates do we see and, and so on. So it's not just, you know, some nice ideas. It's actually based on uh, results and measurement. So with that in mind, uh, what's typically going on in these situations is that if somebody meets criteria, now, of course, the criteria for entry into one of these programs can be somewhat arbitrary, but, um, you know, if there's a, a pattern of what they want to employ, it, it can be very helpful. So just for example, um, some of these substance abuse or drug courts, um, you know, if a person has a history of substance abuse, and if they have demonstrated a want and need to overcome that substance abuse problem, and if there is a pending charge of some kind, whereby the court can utilize bond conditions as a means of um, enforcing compliance with these programs, the idea is, uh, while you have this person's attention, while they have something hanging over their head, and while they're motivated, uh, you can, timing-wise, uh, utilize the community resources to their maximum benefit. And it involves uh, regular meetings, strict compliance with both uh, treatment, but also random drug testing, and so on. One interesting thing that they noted is that they had sort of a general drug court where they put people that had alcohol issues, um, basically any, all manner of uh, illegal narcotics use and that sort of thing, all into one basket initially. And they found that there's a difference between people that are addicted to some su substances versus uh, opioids and heroin. Because that's a, it's a different sort of need there. Because, and there's also different dynamics as to how that sort of treatment works. We also know that a lot of people that end up um, addicted to opiates are people that sort of, you know, found themselves addicted one day after they had been prescribed medication and uh, basically became unable to stop using that medication. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with that concept. So it's kind of a different path for how people find themselves in a situation where they're using opioids. And I'm sure you all are familiar with this the very common scenario where somebody could be anybody, you know, not necessarily like a street criminal, but someone who, you know, quite um, honestly and legally ends up getting these prescriptions and then just because of the way they work and what they do to the human body, they end up uh, in a state of physical and psychological dependence. So that's a very difficult, it requires a whole different approach than somebody who has addiction issues, but it's a different type of dependence, it's a different type of uh, situation where people find themselves you know, in need of that kind of treatment. So they, 
they created a whole separate treatment court for just that issue. They have a completely separate um, court for mental health needs. And likewise, um, what they have found is that if you group in everybody together, everybody that has, whether it's an alcohol problem, a mental health problem, a, you know, whatever uh, the issue may be, you you end up not meeting the individualized needs. So mental health courts, you know, what one of the big things that they found is that when they have people that are having difficulty complying with treatment plans, it's usually because they either can't afford or can't have access to medications that they actually need. So one of the parameters of that particular type of court is that, you know, a medical evaluation combined with an order that somebody follow the medical advice that's appropriate for that person's condition, including taking the appropriate medications and working with, cooperating with their um, physician and or mental health care provider. Um, you can see why that would have a different sort of uh, track on uh, in the process of you know how you would monitor those types of things. So I found it very interesting that first of all, they were able to successfully convince the board of supervisors that this was a good thing to try. And it just so happened, I think they were lucky that they had this $15 million on the table that they were ready to spend on something else. And uh, Judge Zeibelder up there had the courage to, you know, address this. It was opportune. It was a very good opportunity at a very good time. So what is happening is that other counties are looking at this from not only a fiscal perspective, but addressing a bigger need in the community and getting to the underlying root causes as to how people find themselves in trouble with the law, which is a very progressive idea. But, um, you know, it's something that is kind of gaining momentum throughout the state and other places in the country. Well, it's time for a commercial break, so we'll be right back after these messages. You know, there's been a long history of uh, various attempts to reform the justice system. And if you're familiar with the, the history of crime and punishment in our country, it follows the same path that, that many other countries, jurisdictions have followed, where depending upon how evolved the state of mind of not only the government, but the, the people that are part of society view crime uh, or the problem of crime and what the appropriate response is. And uh, earlier in the history of our country, of course, we, we did what most, most uh, places did at the time, which is if someone violated the law, they were removed from society, oftentimes... Uh, permanently, or, you know, they were put to death, depending upon, obviously, what the crime is. But um, the rationale behind that was this big notion of deterrence and setting an example for others who might commit a similar crime as a way to uh, give guidance as to how people should live their lives. And, you know, that's fine. That's good. It's good to have laws. It's good to have laws that are enforced. It's good for people to know that they will be enforced so that you have an incentive to follow the law. Uh, 
But that approach, if it is too draconian, sort of like, you know, the bad dog approach, <laughs> bad boy, um, is something that we've learned over time is not as effective as, you know, the common sense of connecting the dots that, oh, person commits crime, throw them in jail and forget about them because of the larger implications on society in general. And during the time, and this is really before the turn of the 20th century, um, a lot of the prisons um, or holding facilities in our country were um, in deplorable, in a deplorable state, you know, uh, it was, there was no regulation. There was no, um, effort to, you know, really keep people alive beyond just bare subsistence. And the experience of prison was designed to be very, very unpleasant. And yes, there's still that notion today that removing one from their, uh, families, loved ones, jobs, uh, careers, goals, you know, or the ability to go wherever you want and do whatever you want is removed when someone's incarcerated. So there's that punishment aspect of it. But we have evolved to the point where we still have to understand that there are basic needs that need to be addressed, such as, um, you know, an actual bed to sleep on, not a concrete slab or a dirt floor. Uh, the food is actually not fantastic, but better than bread and water, you know, or something like that, or gruel. <laughs> so, I mean, the more, and this is based on a change of thought that happened really right around the turn of the 20th century, where um, a lot of people that were involved in caring for and supervising prisoners um, sought to reform the way that the philosophy of, of what incarceration really is all about and to remove some of the cruelty behind it. And, and this is not without controversy because even today, if you ask somebody, you know, just a random person on the street, should prison be an unpleasant experience? And almost everyone would say, yes, I mean, you do something wrong. There's no reason why you should enjoy yourself in prison. Um, it's all very interesting because, you know, the, the, that evolution was not just based on the fact that prisons can be cruel. It's also based on new ideas that had to do with um, reducing the likelihood that somebody would reoffend and understanding that this is when we started to use the term corrections. And we have a Department of Corrections, not Department of Punishment or Department of Incarceration. It's a Department of Corrections. Corrections, what does that mean? To help correct someone's, um, you know, problems, errors. So the whole emphasis there is not on the time that somebody's in prison, but what happens after they get out. And there is a mutual interest in that person and society in general to put that person in a position where they're not going to fail. This has been something that has been not just a trend, but a solid component of our corrections philosophy in this country for well over 100 years. Yet, um, we still have many, many laws that uh, 
are designed to ensure that somebody continues to face the ostracizing effect of a of a conviction on their record. Include no matter you know, there's a number of different things that end up happening, and it's one of those gray areas in the law. There's a great deal of case law that talks about what we call um, collateral consequences. In other words, not something that a court orders as punishment, but something that is usually by law just a, a mandatory aspect of or consequence of a conviction, not designed to be punishment, but something that is tacked on to a sentence. Probably the best example that I can give you is when someone is convicted of a felony, and it doesn't matter what it is, it could be writing a bad check or something very benign, and then that person loses their right to possess a firearm. Now, you know, we've talked many times on this show about the dynamics and why those particular laws exist. And as you know, if you've listened before, many of these laws that relate to possession of firearms or the right to vote stem from a long history of what would otherwise be known as Jim Crow laws, uh, and not just specifically directed at um, a particular race or ethnic group, but rather laws that are designed to disenfranchise people. And when they were originally used, they were targeted against certain groups of people, of course. But um, if you think about it, why do we have this broad category of uh, felon, felons, anybody convicted of a felon can never again possess a firearm. And it's, I always find it kind of weird that we have that discussion in court where somebody just got convicted of something that wasn't violent, uh, was not a risk to anybody in the community, just happens to be classified as a felony because the legislators routinely like to increase the penalties that apply to different situations in that hope that if we get stricter and stricter with our laws, that crime will go away eventually. That's kind of the idea. Um, but when you have something like, okay, Mr. So-and-so, you've just been convicted of you know some financial crime. Now you can't have a firearm and you can't vote. Those aren't considered punishment. And in fact, that's what makes them so they're relatively, I mean relatively, not appealable now. Certainly, there are things that are raised in court along those lines. But since it's considered not punishment and a collateral consequence, in other words, just something that happens, and it has to happen, it's mandatory. A judge doesn't have the ability, by the way, in Wisconsin to say, yes, you've been convicted of a felony, but I think you should still be allowed to vote. It's not. That doesn't happen. And, it, and because of the fact that that's mandatory, and because of the fact that that came from the, the lawmakers and removed discretion from the judge to even make a decision with regard to that, you know, it has a double-edged consequence. One consequence is that there are judges that would be reluctant to, um, you know, if it were up to them to impose that kind of requirement because of the fact that there's really no connection between the two things, and that can impact how they view the appropriateness of a charge. And likewise, think about 
the flip side of that, which is the um, possibility or perhaps even likelihood that in certain situations, a district attorney's office could decide that because they have the power to decide what level of charge um, gets initially charged, and they have a great deal of influence on what sort of conviction ends up at the end of the process. Don't you think it's possible that a district attorney could say, oh, my political stance is different than this person, and I have the ability to take this person's right to vote away based on things that are um, part of that discretion in the process. And that could happen with a judge, too. I'm not saying that there's, I'm not going to point to any particular example of it, but you see why the legislature can make some provision and then it's something that provides an opportunity for people to, you know, uh, abuse it um, to um, harm other people, sometimes even politically. So, time for another break. We will be right back. I want to circle back and just uh, follow up on something I was talking about in one of the previous segments, and that is that um, there are problems with treatment courts, and it's really the nature of the criminal justice process. While it's true and really undeniable that um, when people are in a situation where they're facing the potential of uh, incarceration, conviction, etc., that you do have that person's attention and that it is an ideal time to uh, provide resources for that person and structure and everything else. The only way that they've figured out how to really implement this effectively, given those aspects of it, is to um, basically require a person to bypass all of their other constitutional rights. So you can see how there can be a problem where, let's say, somebody does have a mental health need or a substance abuse problem, or if uh, they're in veterans court and they happen to be suffering from PTSD and that is a component or it's a need that needs to be addressed. Since it's tied to a system that where, by its nature, somebody has been accused of committing a crime... You know, we're only dealing with people after the fact, after they've done something theoretically wrong. But taking a step back, don't forget that our entire legal system is premised on the fact that before someone can be convicted, it's only after a jury or entry of a plea um, concludes the case when they are actually convicted, where there's an actual legal determination that the person did in fact do what they're accused of. So these treatment programs are designed in such a way so that there, number one, is it's the treatment is being provided while the case is pending, which of course slows down the court process and, and everything else. Some counties that have these treatment programs have required <clears throat> that a person waive their right to a preliminary hearing waive their right to trial, waive their right to um, contest anything in the case by way of motion or anything else, any legal challenges that might be raised. And it, it does present a philosophical problem in the sense that I'm sure you can imagine there are situations where somebody could be accused of something 
that they didn't do, or there simply isn't sufficient proof to convict the person, yet they have this uh, need that could be addressed. And we haven't found a way yet. I'm, I'm just going to be upfront with all of you that we have not found a way yet that successfully incorporates both of those concepts into one. And again, I think it's simply the nature of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with somebody who has found themselves in potential trouble. I get it. Um, but I, I do <laughs> come across this quite a bit where, you know, if I have a client who it's very clear that they have some sort of treatment need and it's very clear that they would benefit not only from getting that treatment, but also the potential favorable uh, treatment they might get from the court after having um, completed or participated in some sort of programming, it, it necessarily bypasses the, the bigger issue, which is did the person even commit the crime to begin with? And I will tell you that in those counties that have these fairly robust treatment courts, if somebody elects not to participate in them, and if ultimately down the road they have exercised their constitutional rights and end up convicted, uh, they're treated very differently than somebody who went down a different path. So the problem that I see with this is that if somebody wants and needs help, they have to basically, um, at, the for at the beginning of the process, uh, give up everything else about the case by potentially fighting it. And it has the potential to be a situation where the tail wags the dog here. I'm not saying I have an answer. I'm just saying it's a problem that we have to continue uh, being cognizant of. I suppose one way of doing it would be that someone could be um, eligible for you know, treatment regardless of where they where they go in the case, posture-wise. Um, there are problems with that, of course, because I can assure you that the DA's office wouldn't like that. Um, they like to utilize these treatment courts, and it's, it's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that it's something that is a natural consequence of the fact that they exist. They like to utilize that as a way to reduce the number of cases that they have to take to trial. And of course, they have to, they want to incorporate an early decision about waiving all of those rights as a trade-off for uh, getting access to these treatment courts. Um, on top of that, this is another problem with how treatment courts end up getting utilized. You're all aware that district attorneys are elected. They have to run for election. It's not a bad thing, but um, you know that there are certain counties, and it goes both ways. Some counties that happen to be fairly liberal will elect judges of a particular mindset. Counties that are considered very conservative will tend to elect uh, DAs. I, I said judges before I meant DAs. DAs of a, a different type of mindset. And when they run for election, they have positions on crime and justice and so forth and in many places it's it's very popular for a district attorney to promise the voting public that they will be tough on crime and that they will send offenders 
to jail for a long time and that they will make society safer and we can all rest easier knowing that this DA is uh, fighting crime, right? But in these treatment treatment courts, the model, and there hasn't been a model yet that I'm aware of, that doesn't incorporate the full cooperation and participation of the district attorney's office, which can be a gigantic roadblock for people getting access to these programs. And I know some judges, a lot of judges, that really like the idea of having these programs in place, but because um, in that particular county, the district attorney does not agree with providing people a chance You know, if it's more like a black and white, throw the book at them philosophy, all it takes is that district attorney to say, no, I really don't support this. And even if there's a program in place, they have the ability to to not cooperate is what I'm saying. A lot of judges feel frustration of the fact that, um, you know, without that cooperation, we're kind of left with, you know, no alternatives and that kind of thing. But... For the most part, um, district attorneys throughout the state have been fairly good about um, the concept, anyway, the idea that uh, there should be some alternative to just everything, uh, the all-or-nothing approach, you know, to how justice is implemented. You know, maybe, maybe this is a first step towards um, a broader change in society where it's much more focused on restorative components rather than uh, simply punishment as a result of having done something. And, you know, one thing about that, I suppose that if, uh, you know, it's very complicated, it'd be hard to work out, but perhaps there'd be a way whereby if we didn't have such uh, harsh penalties, some of which are mandatory, that the legislature put in place, for example, mandatory minimum sentences for certain things. Um, if that were not something that was on the table, then you know perhaps it would give greater latitude for how things can be resolved. And you know, in other countries, you know, people don't like some people don't like to hear this, but you know, there are European countries that have pretty much taken away the that entire aspect of you know deterrence and harsh penalties that result from convictions and incorporated a more, you know, holistic and problem-solving approach to how crimes are committed. I mean, I think uh, Denmark, Sweden, some of those um, (laughs) Nordic-type countries have experimented a great deal, quite successfully, with um, removing the, the whole adversarial process and and the risk of you know long term incarceration from not all crime but you know the majority of things that people find themselves in trouble for and put it into a context where there is an effort to um, engage in pro- problem solving activity and uh, you know it has been very successful in reducing crime anyway we'll be right back after these messages Have you ever wondered why we have a State Department of Justice, a Federal Department of Justice, 
um, Sentencing Commission on the federal level, all sorts of um, agencies, the Department of Corrections uh, on both levels, and, and a lot of you know government, government resources that go towards uh, fighting crime, making laws, uh, enforcing those laws, uh, executing the laws, etc. And if you look at the other side of it, the, 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 which when I mean by the other side, I mean the, the role of the defense, which, by the way, is incorporated in the Constitution of both the state of Wisconsin and the federal Constitution. There is no mention of district attorneys, and there's only a general mention of what the executive branch does um, or what powers are there. But the specific individual rights, such as the right to counsel, the right to confront witnesses, the right to trial, the right to due process, the right to remain silent, um, all of those things, the right to a public hearing, the right to a fair and impartial magistrate or judge. Those are all individual rights that go to people, and those are all embodied in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights, which means they're very important, right? Yet, we leave it up to sort of a, a happenstance or um, irregular way of providing defense to people. And it still surprises me that in the modern era, if we're in the modern era, maybe we're not, maybe we're not there yet. Maybe someday in the future we'll look back and say, that wasn't the modern era, this is the modern era. But whatever. Point being that we have so many advances in technology. We shoot things up into space. We're close to either curing cancer or reducing the uh, mortality rate for things that re require advances in medicine. Think about all the computer technology that we have. And we still leave it up to either a you know poorly funded and very disorganized process whereby people are provided counsel. I would tell you, there are many lawyers that are part of this process that don't want it to be um, helped any more than it is because it's business. And yes, you know, it's a function of capitalism and so on. But we have found a way, when you think about it, through government resources and through the intervention of private insurance companies, again, not without its problems, but we've put a lot of effort and attention on the issue of making sure that people are more likely to have a variety of resources that can help them get medical care. Because it's important. If someone's sick or dying and they, they walk into the emergency room, we know that they'll figure out how it gets paid for later. And that's why insurance exists. And that's why we have things like Badger Care and all kinds of things like that, the things that are in place. And I, I like to draw this analogy because let's say I fall very ill from some virus or let's say I get hit by a bus or something like that and I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, you know, it just happened to me. And, uh, you know, it wasn't something I planned on. It comes from out of nowhere. I, If I'm like most Americans, I don't have a tremendous amount of money set aside for that day when a piano might fall on my head from a building in a Laurel and Hardy movie. You know, so why is it that 
when it comes to legal needs that, by the way, remember, this is all premised on the fact that if someone's accused of something, they are not guilty until and unless there's an adjudication of that, often by means of a jury trial. So that presumption of innocence. Yet, somebody that has any resources whatsoever is forced to be in a position where they have to find funding for this. And it's not like, oh, I want to put a new roof on my house, or, oh, I want to buy an RV so I can explore the country. And you save up for that and you plan. You know, many, many times, the the fact that someone's dealing with a criminal allegation all of a sudden is a surprise. One might argue that, hey, if you, you know, why should we worry about how people pay for their defense? Because the real answer is don't commit any crimes. But again, that our system isn't designed in that way. We're not guilty until proven innocent. We are innocent until proven guilty. So, you know, I've thought about this before, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to resuscitate an idea that I and several of my colleagues had years ago, and that is, you know, there really should be a more robust program whereby people can have access to representation. Now, don't get me wrong, the Public Defender's Office does excellent work, and they are very, very noble persons in what they do. The Federal Defender's Program is likewise something that is very uh, honorable, but um, it's all of those programs are historically underfunded, frankly, underappreciated, because people don't get paid very well at all, and there is an, an, an antagonism that persists as if they are simply being problematic and uh, throwing up barriers uh, between the process of accusation and um, conviction. So one remedy when you have these types of problems in a, a variety of other areas, I'll give you an example. Um, the regulation of how narcotics or illegal drugs are um, rendered illegal. And you, you've heard a lot about scheduling of drugs. You know, These are all things that emanate from the federal government because under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, the Supreme Court has given approval for the federal government to make substantive laws that affect the nation in general. And making certain substances controlled and illegal to possess without a prescription, or if by their nature they are Schedule One substances where there is no theoretical, you know, medical benefit, or and there is a high risk of addiction and abuse. Um, you know, we have this philosophy that it is such an important crisis that there are federal laws, federal resources that overlap on top of state resources. So the philosophy on that is that it's it's such a big issue that affects everyone in the country that it needs to be addressed nationally, uniformly. And again, it, it layers on top of state laws. And of course, we've discussed many times the problems where a state such as, I don't know, Colorado or California or Washington or New Mexico, you know, essentially decriminalizes or renders legal the possession of marijuana, even for recreational purposes. And as you know, Michigan did that. 
Illinois did that. New York did it. Minnesota's doing it. Um, you know, but still, we have. I'm using it as an example because it is something that uh, the lawmakers have deemed sufficiently important that there are resources that need to be devoted to it because of, of the nationwide impact of illegal drugs. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you had lax regulation of certain things in one place and strict regulation of them in another place, it kind of defeats the point of us being a union in general. But my analogy here is that um, I believe that there is a way that we could, frankly, it sounds kind of dramatic, but create um, a new federal agency that's responsible for training and providing um, defense resources to citizens, just like we have the Department of Justice as its counterpart. And if there were a mandate that the funding be equal, the staffing be equal, and that the eligibility to participate in all of that is something that is not based on someone being completely impoverished like it is now, I will say that the federal programs have much more leeway than the state ones generally do. But by putting this into something that had as much of a robust presence, and again, remember, this, all of these things come from the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, part of the Constitution. And, um, you know, theoretically then we would have a more balanced approach to things. We would have people that are skilled and could be there could be certification requirements before somebody could handle a very serious case, which again it drives me crazy that we have no such requirement. Um, somebody fresh out of law school that doesn't has never tried a case, there's no pro prohibition on that person coming into court and defending somebody on the most serious charges. We just don't have that as part of the system. Anyway, we've run out of time, so we'll continue the discussion like we do every Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.